This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, February 4th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Telluride School District to make masks optional, Arts District shares plan for reimagined transfer warehouse, the Nugget reopens, and a mountain weather forecast. Starting Wednesday, February 9th, masks will not be required for students or staff in the Telluride R1 School District. Telluride School District Superintendent John Pandolfo made the announcement in a letter to the community on Friday. The decision moves the school district in line with San Miguel County, which will also lift the mask mandate next week. Pandolfo emphasizes that while masks will become optional, public health officials still encourage individuals to wear well-fitting, high-quality masks while in indoor spaces. He adds if an individual tests positive for COVID, they should isolate for five days and must wear a mask for an additional five days if they return to school. In the letter, Pandolfo notes the primary goals for the district during the pandemic have been to maximize in-person learning and high-quality education for students and maintain safety for students, staff, and their families. Finally, Pandolfo asks students and families to be respectful of anyone who chooses to wear a mask and take serious consideration if a teacher asks students to wear masks while in their classroom. During the pandemic, the Telluride Transfer Warehouse quickly became the haven for music, dance parties, and community gathering. But always floating in the background was the Telluride Arts District's plan for the space moving forward. Pre-pandemic, the Arts District was intending to build a building within a building, three stories of gallery space and multimedia studios. Now, as the Telluride community has breathed new life into the stone structure, the Arts District is going in a different direction. I thought, really good architect, um, some really good stuff, but what I felt was that the scheme was sort of losing the soul of the existing place, and I said, what I'd be interested in, if you all are interested in, is trying to save as much of the soul of the place as possible. That's Tom Kundig, owner-principal at Olson Kundig Architects. Kundig is the new architect designing the remodel of the transfer warehouse. He was in Telluride this week to give community presentations at the library on the new vision for the transfer warehouse. For Kundig, a large part of maintaining that soul is in the stone walls. How do you keep it simple? How do you maintain that existing rock character, which I think personally is kind of priceless? Um, if that makes sense, because you can't do that anymore. This is something you guys have, no one else has. As much as possible, save that uh, spirit of the building and then make the rest of the building uh, as flexible as, and as morphable as possible. In the new design, the transfer warehouse has three levels. First, a basement. There is a basement, or there was a basement. So what we're, <laughs> we're learning more about what is under the dirt. And it sounds like it wasn't a 100% completely um, open basement down below, I guess, you know? We, we don't know. Yeah. But that's the we mystery for us. That's the mis one of the mysteries of the project. That basement will have offices, a green room, restrooms, and mechanic space. But what we're also trying to do is bring something very important to the Telluride Arts uh, Group, uh, a gallery, an enclosed gallery that is obviously open to the public, but also somewhat protected 
for the art or works on paper for photography. Above the basement is the street level, the courtyard. That has become so important for Telluride's community in the last couple of years, in particular as an outdoor venue. Well, this is now trying to look at that outdoor venue as an indoor outdoor venue so that you can really open it up or close it down depending on what the conditions are in a, in a sort of an elegant, beautiful way. In Kundig's design, the first third of the courtyard next to the door on First Street will stay open as a courtyard. The remaining two-thirds of the building will be enclosed. But the membrane between the two is glazed. So you can close a large window and basically still have the sense of inside and outside, or outside to inside and inside to outside, or literally open it up and then you basically have opened up the courtyard um, as much as possible to what you have. The covered portion of the courtyard will have a back wall for projecting films and serve as additional gallery space. Here's Telluride Arts District Executive Director Kate Jones. This flexible, this super flexible space can be adapted for film and music and dance and, you know, smaller events. Everything's kind of mobile at yep. this point, um, so that the whole room can be transformed for different kinds of events. The final level, sitting on top of the two-thirds courtyard space, is a rooftop bar and cafe. That rooftop deck becomes a place for people to gather, um, and uh, of course, fantastic views looking up, up towards the end of the valley, towards Ajax. The process to remodel the transfer warehouse is still in the fundraising phase, but for Penelope Gleason, president of the Telluride Arts District Board, moving forward with the warehouse at the intersection with the AHA School for the Arts and the library feels like securing space for the community. Basically, I feel like, and I've got little tears coming yeah. up right now because I feel like we are anchoring mm -hmm. our community oh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. all in this sector here yeah. and anchoring it in a way with uh, continuity into the future for future generations right. way right. beyond totally us. Right. And yeah. that's just my emotional feeling about this. As we've seen, you know, a lot of creep happen in mm -hmm. our community and a feeling that the community has been diluted or is dissipating. It's, I think this trifecta here is really about anchoring the core of our community. Yeah. The Telluride Arts District hopes to start construction on the transfer warehouse remodel in 2023. According to the organization, the project should cost roughly $15 million. After years of both COVID and construction-induced closing and opening and closing again, the Nugget Theater on Main Street is open once more. The Nugget Theater is this, this wonderful bastion of kind of culture and um, you know, cinema and just a great communal gathering space here in town. And you know, I was very fortunate to have been offered the opportunity to come in and kind of just help keep the lights on. That's Jameson Ritter, the new manager of the Nugget Theater. Ritter moved to Telluride about four years ago because of the Telluride Film Festival, which owns the Nugget Theater and newly the whole Nugget Building. He says when the festival reached out to him about the job, it was a no-brainer. Because I, I myself just wanted to have the Nugget back open and buy a bag of popcorn and sit down and watch Spider-Man for a couple hours on a Thursday night. Coming from a festival and venue management background, Ritter says being around a movie theater isn't a shock but it's not hearkening back to his younger years either. I've been exposed to the industry, but was never 
um, lucky enough to work in high school at a movie theater. I did not think that I'd be at this point in my career sweeping up popcorn in the middle of the night, but it's a, it's kind of therapeutic and kind of nice. He adds it's an interesting time to be getting into the movie theater business. For one, challenges when it comes to concessions. Sour Patch Kids right now? the hardest thing in the world to find. They are nowhere. It's like one of the things that's somehow been hit by the supply chain issues. Sour Patch Kids can't find them. Ritter notes that's not the worst thing. For him, they're not the best movie theater candy anyway. Oh, without question, it's snow caps. It's this great little semi-sweet chocolate morsel with these little white little like sprinkles on it. Looks just like Ajax or Ballard or Palmyra. It's just this beautiful little like mountain little candy. And you mix that with a little handful of popcorn. It's the best thing that the nugget offers. But medium popcorn, pack of snow caps, your taste buds will be thrilled. On the building front, Ritter says some changes are coming. The Telluride Film Festival recently bought the Nugget Building with plans to turn it into a permanent film fest space. There is potential for some great um, renovations for the theater itself, but the primary... Um, renovations that will be taking place will be to the Greater Nugget Building because they do have aspirations for a film festival to have a more year-round presence but also open up a artist residency program and and remodel some of the offices and the space within the Nugget Building to provide you know, you know, rooms for screenwriters and editing bays to work on films and you know, hopefully attract and bring some talent here or provide opportunities for filmmakers and creatives to to work out of the nugget space to kind of hone their vision and, and, and work through that creative process. He notes nothing is set in stone when it comes to renovation plans. But in addition to the building, Ritter hopes some changes can come to the programming at the Nugget. It's a challenge, he says, because of contractual obligations with major Hollywood studios. I think there are some great programming opportunities for this community that we can you know, re-engage or integrate a lot of um, Telluride Film Festival films. Hopefully, going into 2022, can you know take a a much broader programming approach and not just stick to the the mainstream mainstream popcorn blockbuster fare, and 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 try to program some uh, you know stimulating conversation, stirring and and, and inclusive uh, programming elements. For the films currently on the docket, Ritter says he's most excited for a retelling of the Scottish play. I'm actually most excited for um, a special Telluride Film Festival Presents one night only screening of The Tragedy of Macbeth, um, which is all in black and white, done by Oscar winner Joel Cohen and features his wife, Oscar winner Frances McDormand, opposite Denzel Washington, just a tremendous cast, really shot beautifully in this um you know, in a different aspect ratio and in black and white. And I think it's just a really unique film going experience as well as tying in the very influential Shakespearean aspect of it all. It's a different vibe from Ritter's pick as the best film and soundtrack of all time. I have a deep, deep love for the greatest movie of all time. And that is Michael Bay's Armageddon. And if you're probably more familiar with the soundtrack featuring heavily featuring Aerosmith and Steven Tyler belting out, I don't want to miss a thing. I could stay awake just to hear you breathing. I am enamored with that soundtrack for whatever reason. It just hit me at the right time in my youth and my childhood where, you know, hit all the right buttons and I, you know, the movie is probably not aged well and it's, and it's got a lot of, uh, you know, a really, a lot of fun stuff to dissect, but, you know, it's in the Criterion Collection, so... Tell me it's not the best movie of all time. And the soundtrack also 
Grammy award-winning soundtrack. I'm sure in 1998, the Kodo listeners were probably exhausted from hearing Steven Tyler singing, I don't want to miss a thing, but love and adore that soundtrack. Telluride's Nugget Theater is once again projecting cinema onto the screen on Main Street. Spider-Man No Way Home is currently showing, with coming attractions including House of Gucci, Encanto, West Side Story, and The Tragedy of Macbeth. Every winter, Telluride Adaptive Sports hosts disabled veterans from across the country for a military adventure week packed full with skiing, snowboarding, and just hanging out. The 2022 Ski Week came to a close on Friday. In 2019, former KOTO newsie Kara Pallone hit the slopes with the crew. This story was originally broadcast on January 31st, 2019. For the veterans skiing in Telluride this week, the mission ain't over. For some of them, in many ways, it has just begun. Wednesday morning, with temps near zero, a group of men and women gathered in the Mountain Village core. The stoke was high as they suited up, fiddled with lift tickets, zipped jackets, situated hats and helmets. 47-year-old Richard Alcarez of Phoenix walked out onto the snow, his breath visible in the air. Like most people who visit Telluride, he commented about the beauty of the landscape and the steep slopes. At this point in the story, Alcarez could simply be another tourist from Arizona, here for a winter vacation. His monoski is the only outward sign that suggests Alcarez is having a different life experience than most. Adaptive sports, from skiing to badminton, are his refuge. It makes me feel normal, like as normal as I can be. And then when I see other guys with disabilities like way greater than mine, uh, I kind of pushed my disability to the side. I'm like, wow, because, you know, everything, when you really look at it, could be worse. Alcarez is in town for Telluride Adaptive Sports Military Adventure Week, which has been taking place for upward of 15 years. The week includes individualized adaptive ski or snowboard lessons and other activities with all travel, lodging, and program expenses paid. Participants are of all ages and abilities. Some have skied many times before, others not so much. They are all veterans, and they are all disabled. Alcaraz, a former Marine sergeant, served from 1990 to 1996 and was in combat three times. I came back, you know, I had some PTSD, anxiety issues, depression. Uh, so I thought if I bought a motorcycle, you know, I could cruise and feel good, and it worked. And then somebody decided to run me over, and that's how I lost my leg. So below the knee on my left leg. The accident took place five years ago. Immediately after, Alcaraz says he was a little bit lost. What would he do now? But when his prosthetic doctor introduced him to sled hockey, his love of adaptive sports flourished. A talented badminton player, he's a Paralympics hopeful for Tokyo 2020. The 12 veterans here this week were selected from a pool of about 150 applicants. Pat Durkin, who serves as military liaison for TASP, has the unique responsibility of helping to recruit vets to join TASP for its programs. Durkin helps plan and coordinate events such as Military Adventure Week. He says the program is perfect for introducing new passions, new purpose, and new friendships to veterans. As they start to get out here on the snow and as they start to interact with the other vets, they really kind of like come to life. 
uh, you see a lot of joy, a lot of excitement, um, a lot of camaraderie between them. So um, I think that at its foundation is what this week is designed to do, is really to just kind of bring some new life out of them. Speaking of life, it has a funny way of unfolding. Nate Dabney can tell you that. Dabney, a tall and strong man, dances as he and his ski bike load onto the chandala. Not that he'll be spending any time on the beginner lift. Though it's only his third time on the ski bike, he's already graduated to expert terrain. When you turn, when you go into a turn, you want to turn your wheels in the opposite direction of the turn, right? So you can you drift. Dabney, who currently lives with his family in Arizona, grew up skiing and snowboarding in Northern California. So snowboarding and skiing was what I did. But then I got injured, and I, hadn't, I haven't touched anything since then. A flight medic. It was during a rescue in 2009 in Afghanistan that he slipped in the mud while carrying a patient over his shoulder and suffered a spinal injury. The 41-year-old and his wife Alyssa have three sons, ages 13, 12, and 9, all of whom want to snowboard. Dabney says he had to learn a new sport so that he could go with them. I still have to be a father and a, and a husband. And I'm a soldier. We don't, the mission ain't done yet. So I just changed my mission and it's the best life ever. Each year, TASP provides all expenses paid or heavily subsidized programming to more than 100 disabled servicemen or women, which accounts for roughly a quarter of the nonprofit's programming. There are both summer and winter adventure weeks that offer experiences ranging from skiing in Telluride to hand cycling across the desert. Learn more about Telluride Adaptive Sports program at TelluridaAdaptiveSports.org. Gather your friends, your knowledge, and your competitive spirit. The Wilkinson Public Library is teaming up with Stronghouse Brew Pub for a night of trivia. There will be prizes for winners and opportunities to sign up for a library card. Start studying now. Trivia will begin at 7 p.m. at Stronghouse on Wednesday, February 9th. You know dry January, but what about festive February? According to American Addiction Centers, nearly one in four Coloradans, or 23%, who partake in dry January say they drink more alcohol in February to make up for the month of sobriety. That's more than the national average of 18%. But Colorado isn't alone in going hard for February. 14 other states have a higher percentage of people who celebrate festive February, with Alaska taking the top spot at 40%. As climate change becomes more front and center across the world, communities are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. This winter, KOTO is partnering with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at that shift. Today, we're heading to Crested Butte. The people of Crested Butte want their local government to be a leader in climate change resilience, but some residents were not happy with the purchase of a new electric vehicle for the local police. KBUT's Christopher Biddle has this story on what might have caused the backlash. Chief Marshal Mike Riley of the Crested Butte Marshal's Office understands the limitations of social media. Uh, Social media, I... Try not to argue with my dog or the internet. But for this small-town police chief, there is no public relations team, so posting updates to Facebook is a regular part of the job. Like on August 12th last year, when he posted a photo of the department's newest vehicle. As far as we know, Riley proudly wrote, 
this is the first Tesla Model X in service. Not everyone on Facebook that day was impressed. Time out, wrote one person. You idiots spent money on a Tesla? How much did that set me back in my property taxes? Asked another. Others made fun of the futuristic Falcon doors that open vertically instead of outward. Still more questioned the practicality of a police cruiser with a limited battery life. There were some that supported the purchase, but the overall attitude was that a Tesla Model X was unreasonable. Because that's just something that wealthy people in San Francisco do, and that's completely out of touch with reality. That's Cardi Worthman. She co-authored a study that looked at the impact public relations firms had on climate change politics. The study found that industries like electric utilities, oil, coal, steel, and rail pay millions for public relations, while environmental advocates and renewable energy pay comparatively very little. She's heard those criticisms of Tesla before in messaging paid for by oil and gas. So especially the American Petroleum Institute has hired PR firms out the wazoo. So they hire them to work on the federal level, to work in D.C., but they also hire them to work on a more local level. And we've seen that with pretty much every climate. And anything that would reduce our emissions in the United States, uh, like any sort of policy, they're usually fighting against that. For example, as part of their settlement over the diesel emission scandal, Volkswagen paid out $2 billion to fund electric vehicle infrastructure across the country, including two public charging stations in Crested Butte. And at every turn, API have come in and lobbied against them. And they've made oftentimes the same arguments that you'd see on this local level of, oh, it's just rich people trying to buy these nice, fancy Teslas. Thinking back to the public reaction in Crested Butte, there is no actual evidence that an oil and gas PR firm had a hand in stirring the debate. These people had their own agendas, like the local housing crisis, officially declared by the town council only a few weeks before the arrival of the new car. It was also the summer after the murder of George Floyd and the worldwide conversations on police reform. Phrases like defund the police had fully entered the American lexicon. These were the issues that people were talking about that day. But both of those narratives depend on the narrative of Tesla as a decidedly impractical and elitist vehicle, something the company's real public image and that of its celebrity billionaire founder Elon Musk maybe doesn't help. But the narrative has been around far longer than Musk's celebrity or his automobile company. That's the sound of the Tesla Model X backing out of the garage of Marshall Joseph Dukeman. It's not hard to get him talking about his new cruiser. It's a good transition where maybe I was skeptical at first since driving them and, and how efficient this thing gets 375 miles. You know, I think that that's what people were. were it's actually the third electric vehicle in the Marshall's yeah. fleet. They also have two electric motorcycles and there's a new Tesla on order. That's how much they like it. As the department adds new Teslas to their fleet, Chief Riley will likely remain the department's de facto PR team. And if the social media backlash returns, he'll probably do what he did last time. Respond with the facts. Which is, in my estimation, the, the best response to, to anything off of social media or the internet. So Time will tell if that's enough to help change a very old, very powerful, very expensive narrative. 
For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Christopher Biddle. Colorado lawmakers have rejected a bill that would have banned the hunting and trapping of bobcats and mountain lions. KOTO's Scott Franz has more. Democratic Representative Sonia Jaquez-Lewis of Boulder County was the only yes vote on the bill. She says bobcat killings in Colorado are out of control. In 2019, we lost nearly 2,000 bobcats. We already have so many threats to our wildlife in Colorado. But dozens of hunters opposed to the restrictions. And former state wildlife commissioner John Howard said Colorado Parks and Wildlife Studies do not support a hunting ban. Disruption of lion ecology is not a risk. CPW has a rigorous process for mandatory education, strict quota limits on lions. Howard said limited lion hunting also benefits some birds and other species. The hunting restrictions were rejected at the bill's first committee hearing. I'm Scott Franz at the state capitol. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clear skies tonight with a low around 10 degrees. Saturday should be sunny during the day and mostly clear at night with a high in the mid-30s and a low around 10. Sunday, expect sunny skies with a high around freezing. Sunday night should be mostly clear with a low around 10 degrees. This has been the news for Friday, February 4th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hello, my name is Emmeline Cochran, and I'm the Behavioral Health Care Coordinator at Tri-County Health Network. Do you have a family member or friend who struggles with a mental illness? You may feel isolated, but no, you are not alone. One in five Coloradans will experience a mental health or substance use problem this year. Tri-County Health Network is pleased to announce that we are hosting our Family to Family Education course. This course was developed by the National Alliance on Mental Illness, known as NAMI, for families and friends living with or caring for someone who has a mental condition. Family to Family is a free eight-session program led by NAMI-trained community members who either themselves have experienced a mental condition or have lived with a family member diagnosed with a mental illness. Tri-County Health Network is offering Family to Family virtually on Wednesday evenings. The sessions will start February 23rd and continue through April 13th. The program is free and confidential. For more information or to sign up for Family to Family, call Tri-County Health Network at 970-708-7092 or go ahead and email us at info at tchnetwork.org. Thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Kodo. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues. <laughs>